Now we're jumping somewhat ahead from having dealt with various sacrifices and also the ceremonial cleansing as in our message on skin diseases, which you probably remember, and then all in one day, the Day of Atonement from Leviticus 16. So we're jumping way towards the end of the book in chapter 23. I'm going to try to do you a favor and myself too by breaking it down into sections and reading each section of Leviticus 23 as we come to it in the sermon. So the first thing I'm going to do is read to you just the first two verses as background to the Feast of the Lord as given, actually let me go up all the way through the first three verses, as background to the appointed feasts, and then the Sabbath as a background to it all, not really a feast, but a continual reminder of God's creation and his Sabbath rest. So with that in mind, let me read to you Leviticus 23, 1 to 3, and then we'll read the rest of it as we go along. Hopefully that'll help you. This is God's word. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, These are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations. They are my appointed feasts. Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day it is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. So far, God's word. Let's pray for his blessing. Teach us again the meanings of these feasts, celebrations, and the Sabbath at creation, created, and then observed, and then fulfilled in heaven. Bless us to see Christ in all of these sacrifices as the first and the last. In Jesus' name, amen. Does life have any end to it? The world would say it ends with not a bang, but a whimper. In other words, we just don't know when it's all going to fizzle out. Life doesn't really have much of a sense of climax or anticipation, and therefore life is plain old boring. We find this expressed by the famous William Shakespeare in his play Macbeth, and Macbeth, you know, is what, not really a jolly fellow. He was pretty depressed, and he said uh, this about history and life. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. And all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle, life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. Are you depressed yet? That's what the world says. None of this makes any sense. We are going nowhere. It's all going to fizzle out. So just keep living tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow until the brief candle is put out. The cycle of these feasts in the Old Testament were celebrated in one year. But they were all fulfilled in Christ, as we shall see, in his life, death, resurrection, the central point of history, the first coming of Christ, 
And following in the outline also, there's going to be a second coming of Christ. And the second part of these feasts all center around the second coming of Christ or the warning of the end. So these cycle of feasts we no longer celebrate. They are ceremonial laws. They have sacrifices connected with them. We realize the Jews may celebrate some of these feasts already today. I particularly think of Rosh Hashanah, which is not exactly a feast, but which is the beginning of the year for the Jews. It doesn't calendar connect with our calendar. It's a different beginning and a different end. So it's a little bit hard for us to relate to some of these feasts. Also, they had a different time of harvest than we generally do, and that causes some complication. But again, I'm trying to simplify, and we'll start out with the Sabbath at first. That is the beginning. And here is a reminder that on the backdrop of this weekly rest day, we are imitating God in his rest from creation. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. Remember the fourth commandment. It is a Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwelling places. That's not really a ceremonial law. That's a creation ordinance, we would say. And we celebrate the one day and seven Sabbath on the Lord's Day, as you all know. But in the Old Testament, they celebrated other set feasts. Now, Colossians, I read to you, (coughs) as showing you that we're no longer to judge anybody on their observation of any other days. In fact, they are fulfilled in Christ. But there is a pattern here that helps us to understand both the first coming and the second coming of Christ. First, the central point of history, and we begin with verse 4, and now I'll read through each paragraph at a time. The Passover. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord, the holy convocations which which you shall proclaim at the time appointed for them in the first month. On the fourteenth day of the month at twilight, it is the Lord's Passover. And on the fifteenth day of the same month is the feast of unleavened bread to the Lord. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, but you shall present a food offering to the Lord for seven days. On the seventh day is a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. Now this is the feast of Passover. You're familiar with it. It's mentioned in the New Testament too. And, of course, we know that it was around the time of the Passover that Jesus celebrated the Lord's Supper with his disciples after they met for the Passover meal. And it is a feast. Now, remember, the original Passover was a little bit different. First of all, God was going to deliver his people out of Egypt. They had to be ready with their staves. They had to have unleavened bread. And they were going to wait to be released from Egypt because the Passover lamb would be killed so that the blood on the doorposts and on the lintel of each house would protect you from the avenging angel which would destroy the firstborn in every household in Egypt so that Pharaoh would finally say, I let you go. Get out of here. Take everything with you. And therefore, they could come with their unleavened bread and go out in the desert, and they really went away. This happened only once. But to remember that it happened, they had a feast since then, and it moved from being celebrated in each household to being celebrated by the priests and in Jerusalem on that day of celebration of the first day of the feast 
of unleavened bread, and that's the Passover. So you know Jesus and his disciples celebrated the Passover, approaching the time when Jesus would die on the cross. And of course, we have to remember there was the requirement of the lamb, which is to be killed and eaten as the Passover lamb. So it was a feast of the Lamb of God, and Christ, the Lamb of God, would actually go and die upon the cross shortly afterwards. Now, they weren't leaving Egypt anymore. They were in the promised land. There was no angel of death killing the firstborn. These are all rather types and shadows of the redemption of Christ Jesus, and the Feast of Unleavened Bread was feasting on the Passover lamb, and therefore we see this Passover fulfilled in Christ. Christ, your Passover, has been sacrificed already for you. Let us therefore keep the feast without the leaven of sin and celebrate it with purity and with great joy. And we realize then that God would provide a lamb for the sacrifice as we find was given in Genesis 22, where God would provide a lamb to substitute for the sacrifice of Isaac, for example, ultimately fulfilled in all the Old Testament sacrifices, but particularly the feast of Passover. Behold, Jesus is introduced by John the Baptist. Behold what? The Lamb of God. I hope that's pretty clear. You sort of know about that already, don't you? And then Paul argues about this, that it has relevance to our Christian lives. We don't have to clean the leaven out of our houses anymore, it says. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, which you really are unleavened. For Christ our Passover has been sacrificed. Let's celebrate the festival, not the feast, but the reality of the Christian life, not with the old leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. We are to be sincere and truthful. That's unleavened life. That's life being purified from malice and evil, and we cleanse out the old leaven, the Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, has already been sacrificed. We are, no long, we are not saved, therefore, by baptism or the Lord's Supper, but all of those new covenant sacraments, which all point forward to Jesus Christ, and of course, in part, the Lord's Supper is connected to Passover, but I would argue with all of the feasts in which the people participated by eating and drinking. The second feast is the feast of harvest or first fruits, and let us read about that in verse 9. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. He shall wave the sheaf before the Lord so that you may be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. On the day when you wave the sheaf, you shall offer a male lamb, a year old, without blemish, as a burnt offering to the Lord, and the grain offering with it shall be two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, a food offering to the Lord, and a pleasing aroma. And the drink offering with it shall be of wine, a fourth of a hen. And you shall eat neither bread nor grain, parched or fresh, until the same day, until you have brought the the offering of your God as as a statue forever throughout your generations in all of your dwellings. This is the Sabbath after Passover. It's very closely connected with the Passover, and it's a festival of thanksgiving 
and of first fruits. Now, the Bible in the New Testament talks many times about the significance of first fruits. For example, Jesus Christ is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, according to 1 Corinthians 15. In other words, Christ is the first fruit, and that refers to his resurrection. So if the Passover is like his death, after that we have a celebration of his resurrection in the first fruits from the dead, namely Jesus Christ. Now the word is used other ways, the first fruits of the harvest, in Jeremiah 2, the first converts in a particular place are sometimes called the first fruits. For example, James 1 of his own, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits. We should be a kind of first fruits of his creation. So Christ is first fruits, and then Christians become part of that harvest. Do you see the idea? things that are coming out of the ground that God blesses. And this is a time when you first bring in the first part of the harvest, the first fruits. There's a whole harvest season, by the way, ahead, which we'll talk about in a minute. But it says in Thessalonians, God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit. And those who have been redeemed from mankind, Revelation 14 says, are first fruits for God and to the Lamb to Christ, the one who is first raised from the dead. We ourselves also have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit. All of this has to do with the resurrection of Christ. Remember, when Christ rose again from the dead, the rest of us shall be raised with him later. And we are also the first fruits of the harvest, of people becoming part of that great harvest of the last day. And then we realize that we are remembering in this feast of the first fruits, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You could say that we also celebrate this feast on the weekly Lord's Day because we are remembering, as you know, the resurrection of Christ. We also celebrate the Lord's Supper often on the Lord's Day, remembering the death of Christ. So the death and resurrection of Christ are folded into our weekly celebration of worship based upon what Christ has done and his resurrection from the dead. So in a way, it's relatively simple. Christ's work consists first of his death and then his resurrection. But there's a third thing that happens 50 days later. Seven Sabbaths. What's seven times seven? How is your multiplication tables? 49, right? Okay, what's 49 plus one? 50. That's easy, right? We got that down. Well, 50 days, we find, afterwards, later, seven Sabbaths plus one, the Holy Spirit is given by the Father because that's what we call the Feast of Weeks, seven weeks, or the Feast of Pentecost. What happened on Pentecost? Christ rose from the dead. He ascended to heaven. He says, wait here until the coming of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit was poured out because that was, that's what Pentecost really means the Holy Spirit given by the Father, Christ now glorified and ascended. He pours out the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of truth, enabling us to do what needs to be done in the power of the Holy Spirit. This is sort of simple then. If you boil it down, I'm trying to make it simple. The first three feasts, death, resurrection, ascension, and outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Simple, right? In a way, we remember this all the time. Now, there are some who believe in a kind of a church calendar, 
And they sometimes talk about Ascension Day or various days that are similar to these days. In the Reformed churches, we don't do this. We say it's fulfilled in Christ. Nothing wrong with remembering the Ascension. It's as though we remember it every Lord's Day. We remember his resurrection every Lord's Day. We remember the death of Christ every Lord's Day. We don't need to recreate that year since it's fulfilled in Christ, we would say. So now we have Christ and the giving of the Holy Spirit summarized in these first three feasts. So don't worry about it. Don't do the sacrifices. Just remember Christ. That's basically what these feasts were helping the people to do. Look ahead to the coming of the Messiah who would die, be raised, and pour out the Holy Spirit. Now, their last three feasts are all in the seventh month. Sometime later, the first three feasts were first month and then close to that first month and then 50 days or seven weeks plus one later. And now we wait. We wait for other, well, about three months from Pentecost. In between, when the harvest was begun and the first fruits were reaped, what do you have? The harvest grows. It grows and grows and grows until the end when God reaps the great harvest of history. The Feast of the Trumpets is a reminder that Christ will return and gather in his harvest home, we sometimes say. This is a season of waiting and anticipating the judgment. And when judgment comes, what's going to announce the judgment? Trumpets. The trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible. Now, there were trumpets that sounded prior to the various feasts to call them to worship, but the last day trumpet is going to be much louder than that, and over the entire world, and everybody's going to hear the trumpet sound. Well, back then, they kind of acted this out, and they used these trumpets as a call, an announcement. They were blown from morning until evening, and let me read that one to you. This is, by the way, verse 23. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall observe a day of solemn rest, a memorial proclaimed with a blast of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, and you shall present a food offering to the Lord. By the way, I forgot to read about the Feast of Weeks. You have to do that yourself a little bit later. A lot of offerings, a lot of sacrifices, and that Feast of Pentecost, which I referred to. But now we have the, the Feast of Trumpets, a warning of the coming judgment. Isaiah 27 says, In that day a great trumpet will be blown, and those who are lost in the land of Assyria, those who were driven out of the land of Egypt, will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain at Jerusalem. Come to worship, come to repent of your sins, come to faith in Christ, and come ultimately to heaven, because Christ is returning and when he returns, First Thessalonians said, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Paul calls this the last trumpet. So it's the warning. The next thing that's going to happen is Christ will appear. So here we have these last three feasts, the, day, the Feast of Trumpets. Now, it's a bit... Maybe surprising to see that we put the Day of Atonement right here. Now, I already talked to you about 
how Christ paid for our sins all in one day. That's already been accomplished. But here we have a remembrance of that fact. This tenth day of the seventh month is the day of atonement. We're in verse 27. It shall be for you a time of holy convocation. You shall afflict yourselves and present a food offering to the Lord. You shall not do any work on that day, for it is a day of atonement to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. For whoever is not afflicted on that day, on that very day, shall be cut off from his people. And whoever does any work on that very day, that person I will destroy from among his people. You shall not do any work as a statute forever. Throughout your generations and all your dwelling places, it shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest. And you shall afflict yourselves on the ninth day of the month, beginning at evening from evening to evening. You shall keep your Sabbath. Now, see, there are many Sabbaths in the Old Testament. When Paul talks about no one, let no one judge you about Sabbath days. He's not talking about the creation ordinance of the weekly Sabbath. He's talking about these other ceremonial Sabbaths, which we no longer have to celebrate. We already have Christ fulfilling these sacrifices and fulfilling the atonement, the day of atonement. And what we're doing is remembering that as Christ prepares to return, we are covered by his blood, by a sacrifice provided all in one day. Remember that? It's a sacrifice once a year, all in one day, the day of atonement. So as Christ comes to return, first we have a warning trumpet. Then we have a reminder that Christ already died to be a sacrifice for sin. And then finally we have the Feast of Booths. Now we think of booths, we think of a state fair or something like that with little booths around. It's not exactly that. A booth is a tabernacle. This is what we call the Feast of Tabernacles. And we find it in verse 23, 33. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel saying, On the fifteenth day of the seventh month, for seven days is the feast of booths, or tabernacles, to the Lord. On the first day shall be a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. For seven days you shall present food offerings to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall have a holy convocation and present a food offering to the Lord. It is a solemn assembly. You shall not do any ordinary work. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim besides the Lord's Sabbaths and besides your gifts and besides your vow offerings and besides your free will offerings which you give to the Lord but on the 15th day of the seventh month when you gathered in the produce of the land now we have the end of the harvest remember the first fruits was the beginning and then there's growing of the harvest and then there's the final reaping of the harvest and this is the feast of booths you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord seven days on the first day solemn rest, eighth day solemn rest, you shall take, shall take on the first day the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palm trees, and boughs of leafy leaves, and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God seven days. You shall celebrate it as a feast of the Lord for seven days in the year. It is a statue forever throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths, or little shacks, you might say, for seven days, all native Israelites shall dwell in booths, that your generation may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. In a way, we're just camping out here. We're waiting for the coming of the Lord. We have temporary places to live. Our bodies themselves are temporary in this form, and they shall be raised incorruptible. We're waiting for the coming of the Lord. 
We anticipate that coming by remembering that we're strangers here in this world and God will deliver us into our true heavenly home. Therefore, the people who had little houses or even big houses gave them up for this season and they lived in booths to remind them that they used to live out in the wilderness before they came into the promised land. Now, it's very interesting that Jesus actually has great times of celebration about himself during this feast. It's sometimes called the feast. Jesus going up to the feast. You may remember there was a time that he, just, he wasn't going to go up publicly, but he went up separately. And let me just turn with you very quickly, because this is a little complicated, and I don't want to I'm trying to simplify here. But Jesus, at the feast, revealed himself first in chapter 7 of John and verse 37 on the first day of the feast. That's the Feast of Tabernacles. The great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He is the water of life that sustained the people throughout the desert. Remember, speaking to the rock, striking the rock. The water came out, depending on what God said to do. And Jesus Christ is the one of whom we drink. He has the river of life within him. And we drink deeply of his nourishment. Anyone who believes in me, as the scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. He said that about the spirit which they were to receive. Jesus was not yet glorified, but when he was, he would say, come unto me, all you are weary and heavy laden. Come and drink, come and taste and see that the Lord is good. And people would do that in celebration of, you might say, the fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles. A little bit later in chapter 8, in verse 12, it says, Jesus spoke to them a little later and says, I am the light of the world. Now, they lit lanterns also during this Feast of Tabernacles. And so just as he says, I was the water in the desert, he is also the light the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus was saying, I am the light. I am the water. He was telling them that the meaning of this celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles was found in him. And this is therefore why the Feast of Tabernacles was the great feast of joy. Remember we saw in Nehemiah, the Lord comes and he reminds the people through Nehemiah that the, the joy of the Lord is his strength. This is what we have today. We have the joy of the Lord, not eating and drinking as a feast might, but eating and drinking of Christ, having him be our light, our righteousness. We rejoice greatly in the power to be revealed in the last time, even though you do not yet see him. You rejoice, and you are exceeding glad because you're looking forward finally to the coming of the day of the Lord. So now we see there is this great climax of the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, the Feast of Booths, and then it simply says, thus Moses declared to the people of Israel the appointed feasts of the Lord. Jesus says, in my Father's house are many rooms. Remember, this is still in the desert. They were there, but there is a greater city to come. There is the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, and Jesus Christ has gone to prepare a place for us. 
In my Father's house are many rooms, many dwelling places, not just tents, but houses, not just tabernacling, but being part of the temple of the living God. Tents are temporary. Houses are permanent. Tabernacles are temporary. The temple is forever. And therefore, we are celebrating the accomplishment of what Jesus did the first time and what he's going to show himself to be from heaven. It's a fulfillment of all of these three later feasts that we already talked about. The Feast of Trumpets, Christ is coming. Day of Atonement, he's already sacrificed himself once for all. So wait for the time when he will finally return, and then comes the end. I hope that makes it a little simpler. You don't have to celebrate these feasts, but you should remember what they mean. And now the very last verse says, or the verse I want to read last, is verse 38. Besides the Lord's Sabbaths, and besides your gifts, and besides all your vow offerings, and besides all your free will offerings, which you give to the Lord, a holy day of assembly. Now, we do have various times of celebration. We have the Lord's Day, to be sure. The Confession of Faith talks about solemn fastings and thanksgivings upon special occasions. Sometimes we celebrate thanksgiving, for example, even in our non-Christian society. But we are ultimately celebrating the festival of Christ, not with the old leaven of malice and evil, but the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And Christ, therefore, fulfills all the feasts. First of all, the Passover. Christ is our Passover lamb. Second, the first fruits. He is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Third, Pentecost. He is the jubilee power of resurrection, and the Holy Spirit falls upon his people in power to speak the gospel. And then at the end, there will be the trumpet sound, where Christ is the one who is announced to return from glory. There will be remembrance of the Lord's atonement, the one who took away sin all in one day. And there will be waiting for the coming of the Lord, who is the true tent, and we will be part of the true temple we will finally be home in our heavenly rest at last. I've entitled this message, Christ the First and the Last. Through Christ, we are free at last, sinless at last, home at last, in Christ completely at last, resting at last, and glorified at last. Christ, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end has embraced you with his redemptive power and with his sure, visible, and powerful return someday. Anticipate the coming of the Lord by living as those who are holy, called by his name, celebrating the feast of his coming with great joy, shall we pray. We thank you, our Lord, for the wonderful meaning of these feasts that seem complicated to us, and certainly we are not familiar with them very much. But we do know that Jesus Christ is the first and the last. We know he is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming to fulfill all of these types and shadows 
pictures and anticipations with the reality of who you are and what our salvation means to us in Jesus' name.